welcome to the Comfort Monk Podcast. Today we got a, a I would say a North Carolina legend, uh, Andy the Doorbum. Uh, he's going to be on the show talking with Eddie. Um, I met Andy years ago. I think we, we played a show together somewhere, uh, maybe even Conundrum, which is now Weco Beer Garden. Um, yeah, uh, I was at that show, actually. Nice, yeah. Uh, he, Andy was involved with a project that I was doing a, a few years back um, with some friends. It was a zine called Caravan. Um, he designed the front cover to one of those issues, and we did a piece about him. Um, I mean, he's just been putting out some pretty interesting sort of experimental music for at least a decade now. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, how'd the conversation with him go? It was awesome. We, uh, you know, he's, he's in LA now. Oh, um, I did he, not know that. Yeah, he moved, he moved coasts. Um, and, uh, you know, we talked about how some of his music could be interpreted as sort of uh, forewarning of this event that we're living through right now. Because yeah, a lot apocalyptic of it tim- would be would would be an accurate way to describe any mm-hmm. of his stuff. And I mean his uh the like the performance art side of what he's doing feels pretty apocalyptic too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um and he just talked about, you know, kind of uh what's going on and his drive to make music. Um we we broke down a little part of his his mantra. Um the last part of, of the Andy the Doorbum mantra is uh, create or perish and we kind of talked about how that applies to uh to you know the modern situation um and he let me know about the probably half dozen uh records that he's got ready to come out soon wow. when everything hopefully return returns to normal yeah um, I'm, I'm excited to hear it man i mean he he's prolific and he, he's so uniquely himself i mean it's hard to describe Andy the door bum. It's almost like you'd be better suited to just. Uh, I mean, he's easier to to describe visually than he is musically. Um, just because it's. I mean, it's his, both aspects. You know, aesthetically and sonically, he's uh, tapped into some pretty. Um, I don't even know how I would describe it. I mean, like primal. Yeah. Um, that, that's, that's pretty accurate. A lot of the instrumentation seems to be like, he'll use like a, older acoustic instruments, but use them in a very, uh, soundscape kind of way where like, almost like, you know, he'll, he'll make an instrument sound like a creaking door for a section of it. Like, uh, you know, or just all, I mean, it's, there's just a lot going on there aside from just whatever, sense of melody is going on in the song it seems like he's trying to put you into like a sonic environment um but as far as i mean did you guys touch on what what kind of musical inspirations he's drawing from because i really i couldn't even begin to guess what he's what he's drawn to you know well he he did say he's getting ready probably the next thing that he releases um that probably is going to be released uh fairly soon <clears throat> is a an album of covers that he's done, which is not normally something that he does. Like none of his albums have cover songs on them, um, but it's all covers of his friend songs. So it's not, you know, it's not necessarily the things that inspired him fifteen years ago, or you know, or whatever. Um, but it's his peers. But it's his peers and things that inspire him. Um, I, I think that was really interesting. And he just, uh, last year, I want to say around October or November, um, <clears throat> one of our uh, mutual acquaintances, one of his friends, uh, Kyle, who goes by the name of the Emotron uh, in his performance art, uh, released a, a compilation double album called Songs of Andy. Um, and it was basically the reverse of that. It was a bunch of people who had been inspired by and touched by Andy's artwork doing covers of his songs. So it's kind of cool to see him do you know, in kind, do the same thing for a lot of other people that have inspired him. Yeah, I'm excited to see who all he's covering on that. Me too. Yeah, I wonder if it'll be some Charlotte acts that we know. Because, um, I mean, that was his home base forever, man. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I had no idea he was an L.A. guy now. Um, that makes sense, though. I feel like there's a an art scene he could fall into pretty naturally. Um, oh, yeah. Well, cool, man. I'm excited to hear what you guys had to chat about. It's good to hear from Andy in general and... I mean, he's just a, seems like a constant force in the 
in the music yeah. world, the, the, or at the least genuine, genuine beacon. Yeah, for sure. So I mean, uh, if you're new to him, check him out. There's a a million records to check out. I mean, he's got beautiful artwork uh, that he sells as well, and I've got some of his art in my living room actually. Nice. I think uh, I still have his uh, "The War Is Always Coming" sticker on the back of my. 2010 Hyundai Elantra right now. Nice. Um, well, yeah. Well, we're going to jump to it, guys. Thanks again. Uh, this is the Comfort Monk Podcast and yeah. Andy the Doorbum. And if you like it, uh, make sure to subscribe yeah. wherever you're getting your podcasts. Yeah, those subscriptions and rating and reviewing add a lot to um, you know just make it where you know people can find us a little easier and it just helps out the show a lot. So if you can do that or if you feel inclined to, it would definitely help us out. Thanks, guys. Enjoy. this guy in uh israel who like this linguistics professor who i was working on some songs he's russian and uh he found me on the internet wanted me to do like the this guy vladimir vysotsky's songs in english for the first time so we were doing like skype calls to so he could coach me on some of that stuff or whatever but that's the only time i've ever used it so that's crazy did, did that end up coming out on anything no, we finished a, a record of like uh, criminal songs. Like he wrote all these songs about criminals, and um, we did that. Uh, we did a record of it, but he was like adamant about wanting to try to find a label for it or something. And I don't know. I kept trying to tell him like we should just put it out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I'm sure it'll probably something will happen with it at some point. But yeah, I mean, that's that's enough of an interesting like context and backstory to get people interested in it i think yeah yeah the guy was the guy was super interesting he was like um real subversive figure and during like the soviet time like the communist times or whatever but uh he was so like insanely popular with the people that he they couldn't shut him up you know without like causing a big stink Um, yeah he was kind of too big to get disappeared yeah uh, even though he did die in the eighties, like under super mysterious circumstances, like his doctor, like was feeding him a mixture of like amphetamines and narcotics and, uh, he died and it was during the Olympics in Moscow and they, uh, ordered, you know, like that it be kept secret that he died and somehow word still got out and there was something like tens of thousands of people gathered outside of his apartment and because they were worried there was going to be a riot from him dying but it was there was still like a huge display of people coming out even though they had bust everyone out of the city for the olympics to make sure there was no like protests or anything it's pretty interesting yeah that's crazy that level of kind of authoritarianism uh when you start have to considering the impact of pop cultural icons yeah pretty wild yeah the guy sold millions of records in in russia even though it was forbidden for people to sell records, but they were all like bootlegs and he still like is estimated to have sold in the millions of records, like as bootlegs. That's crazy. Uh, yeah. I was reading not too long ago about, um, these, uh, like cell phone trading networks in Africa, mm-hmm. like in the more desert regions where the populations are kind of spread out more and how a lot of times the musicians don't have, good enough access to the internet to kind of put stuff out that way. And so cell phone, I I guess like, uh, memory cards or whatever. And, um, uh, there's like this whole trading scene of basically people record songs and then trade them on these cell phones. Um, this, this huge network. And there's all these, these musicians that they think probably, have gotten their music into the hands of like literally millions of people, but there's kind of yeah. no, no trace of it, you know? Um, I have a, a vinyl record actually that's called songs from Saharan cell phones. 
Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, crazy. it's like a, a vinyl record that's pressed of of those types of songs. That's pretty interesting stuff. I bought it just based off the name. I didn't know anything about that, but mm-hmm. I bought that record and it was it's really good. It's by that um, it was put out by that Mississippi Records out of Portland, Oregon. They do some really incredible, you know, obscure stuff like that. But yeah, it's it it's really good stuff. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> I've been doing like uh, learning. I mean, I have like a home recording setup, you know, and so. Um, I've been doing a lot of live stream stuff, so I've kind of mm. set up like a. I've figured all that stuff out in the last couple of weeks, so. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of a weird, especially for somebody like you, where the performance is such a big part of kind of your your live show. I'm sure it's been kind of a, a challenge to make that fit on the small screen. Uh yeah. I mean, the first couple I did were um, acoustic, you know, because I didn't really know how to. I was still figuring it out, so I just played guitar like I used to do, you know, quite a mm-hmm. while back, and um, did some shows like that. But then on the last one, I learned, I learned how to do it a lot better. You know, like I learned a lot more about it, and actually tried to do like a bit more like the visual stuff with some of the lights, and uh, seemed to go pretty well. Like a lot of people were seemed excited about it. You know, like that had seen the live show before, so I guess it worked. I guess it translated okay. That's awesome. So, um, you're out in California right now. Yeah. In Los, Los Angeles. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Um, I, I'm from, uh, I'm talking to you from Columbia, South Carolina. I don't know if I said that before. Yeah. So I know you from your little milestone days. Yeah, for sure. I think we played, uh, probably three or four shows together back in like Augusta or something like that. Oh yeah. Yeah. For sure. Milestone stuff like that. Yeah. But yeah, I was just in Augusta in the with Kyle with Emotron um in May, but it that had been the first time I'd been there in quite a while. Yeah, I was bummed to miss that. Yeah, it was a, it was a good time. I saw uh Kyle recently or not recently, it was it was last year, um at an old uh sort of like abandoned bakery in Atlanta. Oh yeah. <laughs> I cool. think I know what you're talking about, yeah. Mm-hmm. So you guys kind of came up together, you and uh, Kyle, the Emotron, I should say, for our listeners. Yeah, I've been knowing him since probably 2004 or 2005 um, from the Milestone, you know, like uh, I was working door there then and um, yeah, he came through and we just became friends, you know, and at this point I've toured together several times, probably toured more with him than anybody else, him and Chesky maybe. The two people I've toured with the most. Mm-hmm. Do you do you kind of find uh, that there's like a overlap between y'all's fan bases and stuff like that? Both of both of you, obviously, your music is very different, but some of the same kind yeah. of uh, performance elements. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a common thread of just like open-minded people, you know, because both, yeah, what he and I do are, are very different, but they are both kind of performance art related and uh, well my stuff especially these days but um yeah but also you know we we both i think are just interested in ideas and conveying things that are you know someone would have to be a little open-minded to be interested in you know it's not not very run-of-the-mill i don't think you know Mm -hmm. um so yeah i think there's a lot of overlap in that way you know if, if one comes for one thing they would probably be interested in the other uh, or at least have an open mind about it. And, you know, like a lot of our old, a lot of our friends overlap from all those times, you know, that we've been around each other over the years and stuff. So yeah, I'd say that there's definitely some overlap there. Mm-hmm. Try to think back to some of those, uh, some of those performances. They used to get wild. <laughs> yeah. They still do sometimes as far as Kyle goes, as far as the Emotron goes. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's he's a uh, yeah. He and I have known each other for we've been through a lot together, you know, like with touring and all that. And then in 2015, I did like this art war thing in Charlotte. It was like a month long kind of art project where I invited people from all over the country to come stay at this house. And uh, I had invited Kyle actually um, a few months before to come be my roommate because his house had burnt down and. Uh, just said, Hey, you can come live with me for free if you want to, for a few months, if you help me, uh, get this place ready for like an influx of people to come and 
so that was like an interesting experience. And then, you know, <clears throat> I didn't know if people would show up to that, but there ended up being, you know, 20, 30 people from all over the country came uh, to be a part of this thing where we were doing, you know, shows every week and had an art show and did like street performance stuff every day for a solid month. And it was a pretty crazy undertaking, but yeah. um, I, I remember I, I saw kind of the, the results of that, like the, um, the street performance and stuff like that. But what was, I, I don't know too much about kind of what the, the driving force behind it was. What was kind of the, uh, the, you know, the vision that started the art war. Uh, the idea was just that, you know, Charlotte is a pretty conservative place and it's, you know, it's economy is centered around banking and um, there's a lot of interesting stuff happening in the underground there artistically, but I don't know. I just, I just was kind of tired of um, the city not having so much art related things happening in it, you know? And uh, I don't know. I had just been there long enough and been active in the community long enough that I decided that, rather than wait around for more things like that to happen, that I would just try to make them happen on my own, you know, for a time at least. And, um, so there wasn't really like a, a real, you know, clear message other than just to be creative and to try to encourage other people to do, to do the same thing, like in a very like public and kind of subversive way, you know? Um, so yeah, that was the goal and it, and it seemed to work pretty well, you know, like we got the cops called on us a lot and, <laughs> <laughs> and got a lot of encouraging messages from people that enjoyed it. Um, but you know, that's the, that's the nature of art. You'll, you'll have both of those reactions. And if you're getting both of those things, then you're probably doing something right. Yeah, for sure. See, so, so you did get some good positive feedback. Uh, yeah, quite a bit. Yeah. You think it, it helped some people maybe, uh, they're quietly doing art in Charlotte to kind of make it more public. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, I, I've got, I got a lot of messages to, to people saying, you know, that it was really inspiring to them. And, um, but it was a bit strange for me too, because right after that, I didn't realize that this was going to happen, but, uh, I ended up moving, uh, to California right after that. And so, um, it was, it ended up being, you know, like I did not, it wasn't planned, but it ended up kind of being like a farewell to a place that I had lived my entire life. So I didn't see, I couldn't say for sure, you know, in the sense that like I, right after that, I was no longer a resident, you know? So, um, but I still go back there at least once a year. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, there's still great things happening there, but you know, it is still like a pretty conservative place and, still, you know, the banking capital of Southeast, but there are plenty of people there doing amazing things and, um, you know, uh, keeping, keeping those types of things going for sure. Yeah, for sure. You said you, um, you grew up in Charlotte. Grew up in Charlotte. Yeah. I was born in Pennsylvania though. Um, mm -hmm. and I spent I, back and forth. I, well, I grew up actually outside of Charlotte in Gaston County. Mm -hmm. It's pretty close to Charlotte, but real rural part of North Carolina. And, um, yeah, my, my childhood was spent, like I spent summers in Pennsylvania on my family's farm with my dad because my parents had split. And, uh, and then, yeah, I grew up in Gaston County. And then when I was 20, when I started working at the milestone, I moved to Charlotte. Mm -hmm. What what kind of farm was it? Uh, just like a self-sustaining farm, you know, it wasn't commercial, but they mm -hmm. had like, they have a few cows and a few pigs and some chickens and several fields, you know, like my grandfather had a potato field, he grew potatoes in one field and corn in a field. And then, you know, a couple of fields of hay that they would put in to keep the cows through the winter. And, uh, usually no more than a handful of cows. They weren't, they were just producing enough to really like stock their root cellar for the winter, you know, like to have meat and, and canned stuff for the winter to subsidize their food, you know, because they weren't wealthy people by any means, you know? Um, and sometimes they'd sell a little bit of the excess, like just to, up on the side of the road, you know, if the, if there was extra hay or something, extra corn or something, you know, they'd sell it on the roadside, but they weren't like, it wasn't a commercial farm in any way. Mm -hmm. But it's been yeah. my family since the, 1800s that's cool um 
I I don't think I'm uh, pointing out anything, uh, you know, secret here that it seems like that kind of like subsistence and, you know, like uh, self, self-reliance and stuff like that is a pretty big part of kind of the image of your music. Yeah, it was definitely influential on me. And I mean, probably also why I was drawn so much to like punk rock when I was young and the DIY culture, you know, like the idea that you just figure out how to do things on your own. And, uh, you know, I mean, if help comes along, it's definitely nice, but yeah, I think you have to figure out in the world how to make the things that you want and make your life the way that you want it. So that, uh, because at the end of the day, you're the only one that can do that for yourself. You know, if you, if you wait around for someone else to do it for you, it, it probably, you know, there's a good chance it doesn't happen. So, um, yeah, my family had the same mentality in re- relation to the farm. You know, it was like my grandfather had lived through the depression and uh, he just wasn't very interested in being reliant on other people to take care of him. You know, um, he had this land and from the, in, in the family and, you know, he always had the root cellar stocked and actually with what's going on right now, it's kind of interesting because he always, he kind of instilled in me this, you know, like something will happen at some point and you only be able to depend on yourself. And, you know, I'm sure it was like that from that trauma of the depression era, you know, but, uh, I don't know. There was a part of me that like when the, the whole, like, you know, this situation currently with the virus and everything started happening, like I didn't, I wasn't that surprised by it, you know, because Mm. I, for some reason that, that had been instilled in me that there would be a point at some point where something like this would happen from him. Like he, he firmly believed that. Yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of easy right now to view any, any kind of art that has any kind of like apocalyptic kind of themes in it, um, you know, as, as being foretelling, which is, you know, probably, probably not true in a lot of instances. Um, he released, uh, musings on a, a mass extinction, yeah, a couple of years ago, um, yeah. all the all the spoken word soundscape stuff, yeah. kind of a, a apocalyptic event. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I did. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, you know, and a lot of that was like inspired by just seeing, I don't know, see, seeing things that were happening in the world. You know, like with in nature, you know, in regards to the environment and the way that human beings act in the world. Um, but yeah, you know, like I think things like this are also like a potentially a side effect of that, you know, like when you get, uh, a massive population of people in the world, like, um, overextending their resources and doing all the, you know, these things, I think it's inevitable that, uh, things like this become more common and are more, uh, likely to happen in a big way, you know, like we're, we live in a globalized world with, um, the ability for everyone to travel really easily and, you know, huge population centers. And, um, I think it's just, you know, I had just been thinking about things like this being inevitable, you know, like not that I wish them to occur or anything, but it's just, uh, you know, I, I think human beings have a tough road ahead um, because we've kind of made our world this way. And especially, you know, with things like the environment, you know, like the way that we've treated the world in that way, uh, we're going to have more uh, sporadic weather patterns, which is going to lead to more uh, food insecurity throughout the world. And of course, like the people who are wealthier, like the more developed countries are going to try to hoard resources just going to mean that people in the uh, less developed countries are going to have a really tough time, you know, and potentially have to leave the places where they live because they become less and less habitable as climate changes. And, uh, and a part of that also is going to be disease, you know, Uh, and that's unfortunate, you know, like, I don't, don't like to dwell on those things. It's just, you know, I don't know. It was something that was on my mind a lot when I wrote that and, uh, yeah, I was actually touring when the, um, pandemic announcement happened and <laughs> my friends from Ireland in this band called Lancome, uh, dear friends of mine that I was touring with, uh, one of them said that to me, uh, my friend Rady, I think said that to me one night we were getting ready to go. I was getting ready to go on and, you know, 
things were really starting to get serious with the the pandemic and how people were reacting to it. And um, she was just, she said to me, uh, can you imagine what these people are like that haven't seen you before are going to think like all this stuff's happening in the world and then you're going to go on and say all, <laughs> say all this stuff, which is like my normal set, you know, like it's, it's kind of nothing out of the ordinary for me, but I didn't, yeah, I didn't think about it until she said that, how maybe in light of what was happening, the things that I was saying were going to be viewed, you know, mm-hmm. uh, it's pretty, yeah, maybe, yeah. <laughs> It's maybe a little coincidental, but I, I, yeah, it's the first time I thought about it that, you know, some of the stuff I've been saying was going to be viewed in a completely different context or, or a different light because of what was happening in the world and some of the topics that I talk about in, in my work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, part of your, your, I don't know if you'd call it a mantra, but, um, I, maybe artistic statement is, uh, create or perish. Yeah. Right. Um, and you know, you're saying we have a, a long road for humans to kind of figure out how to, uh, you know, deal with this, you know, <clears throat> not the virus, but just, you know, climate change in general and stuff like that. Um, it's in the world. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so I guess, uh, you know, what kind of, what exactly does that mean and how does creation help, you know, human beings? Well, I, the, that, kind of mantra as you called it um started for me you know like i'd i'd go through bouts of depression and stuff in my life you know and i've had some dark times and uh it started as a thing i was just saying to myself you know that the best thing that i had that i could do was to create art and music you know and that for me it was kind of a lifesaver you know and so that mantra came out of just like a thing i was saying in my head you know like when in dark times for me, I either have to be making something or I will spiral into the, into the hole, you know? Um, but as I've started to say it out loud and realize that it was, you know, resonating with other people, I think it, um, it's meant in a lot of ways, both, you know, trying to encourage people to, you know, put their ideas into the world to, to make something in that sense, to like make their voice heard. Um, because, you know, if you don't do that, then you forfeit your power essentially, you know, like, or any influence that you might have to make any kind of difference. Um, but also, you know, like if you think, if you think about it in regards to like human beings place in the world, um, you know, we have to create solutions to our problems, you know, like we've created the problems and we have to create solutions for them. Uh, or it's not going to work, you know, (laughs) like we're not going to make it if we don't do that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I mean it in, you know, multiple ways. Uh, uh, primarily, I mean it in a sense of art, you know, and tr- just trying to encourage people to express themselves and to, um, and you know, to not be afraid and to not be ashamed of who they are and uh, the ideas that they have. But, yeah, in a broader sense, you know, we have to, we have to make a way out of this, uh, you know, out of the, the predicaments that we find ourselves in as a species that are going to be, I think, you know, as I, as I was saying those are going to be very serious things we have to consider over the next 50 years, you know? Yeah. I, I think, uh, <clears throat> in regards to the current crisis, um, it seems like a lot of people are spending some of their newfound, you know, isolation and time to make stuff, um, all the way from it suddenly becoming a huge trend to make sourdough bread, I guess yeah. uh, is, is kind of something that people are, are joking about right now. Um, but I see so many, you know, bands and people that are like, Hey, this is some, you know, project I've been working on off and on for the last couple of years. And I kind of never did anything with it. So here you go, you know? Um, yeah. Or, you know, doing new stuff. Um, so there's definitely an upside to, you know, kind of having people to think about their priorities think about what they're doing, um, you know, with their time. And it seems yeah. like a lot of people are responding by being like, you know, maybe I should spend more of my time creating stuff. Um, yeah, I'm glad to see that. You know, I, I think it's, yeah, I think that th- there is definitely a silver lining to what's happening right now. Like people are, uh, 
being forced to slow down, you know, and to, and being given kind of a, a, a strange little gift, you know, uh, even though of course it's, it's hard and difficult and, and terrible for, you know, people who are suffering economically or suffering health wise, you know, but, um, you know, for the first time, maybe in the entirety of our civilization, you know, we're all having a relatively shared experience or like a vast majority of the world population is having a shared experience, uh, in a time when we can stay connected with each other, which is pretty incredible. Um, and yeah, it's great to see that people are using it to do all these things that they always wanted to do and didn't have time to do, you know? And I, I would love if there was some lasting impact from that, you know, for people to, maybe reassess like what they're doing with their lives because inevitably, you know, like we only, all we really have is time, you know, and that's, that's like our most valuable resource. And it's the one that we, it's very easy to squander, you know, um, you only get so much time as an individual. And, um, so what you do with it is incredibly important, you know, like it's the, it's the thing that you can't put like a dollar value on. Yeah. I mean, of course you need to make money to live and to, you know, pay your bills and all this stuff. But, um, yeah, you know, uh, I mean, I've always lived in a way where I've tried to spend my time doing the things that I love because I know that one day it runs out, you know, I don't have any left and I don't, I want to spend as little of it as possible doing something that I don't care about, you know? Um, and hopefully that'll be a lasting, uh, effect of this. I, I would love to see that, you know, I, I think it, I think it will. And, um, we've kind of shown ourselves, you know, assuming, you know, there was very little, um, you know, unemployment and stuff before this, um, almost everybody was working very hard. Most people more than what's considered, you know, a full work week, stuff like that. Uh, and now we're, we have to kind of realize that, Hey, a huge portion of what we were working towards doesn't actually matter for our survival, you know? Um, all of the all of the movement from you know uh working in the you know big skyscrapers to working from home to hey maybe this you know doesn't actually re- maybe this production doesn't actually contribute much to the world um i think that could be a a benefit of it is people thinking about you know what's important healthcare food uh you know socializing art stuff like this yeah um and then realize that most of the world's effort has gone into other things um yeah i mean you know our economy is based primarily on desire you know like and frivolous desire and that that's no accident you know like that's been pushed uh since the 40s and 50s you know that to to move our economy from a needs-based economy to a a want a desire-based economy you know um so we are you know we're encouraged to desire things that we don't need that won't last um so that we have to continue like constantly get more of them you know uh and yeah like something like this is nice in that way that it shows us like yeah you don't actually need that much you know like like you said healthcare uh food you know uh, basic like utilities like just like basic stuff you know human contact you need human contact um and also yeah it's kind of nice to see um the importance of art being realized again you know because i think it was in mainstream culture is taken for granted in a lot of ways you know and um but in times like this like that's the thing that you turn to for comfort you know like that's the one kind of thing that seems a little frivolous and that, that structure, like hierarchy of needs that is actually pretty important, you know, because mm-hmm. it keeps you connected and it keeps people able to express like these complex feelings in a way that nothing else really does. You know, like it's, it's one of the, one of the most intense forms of communication, I think, you know, art and music and just those kind of creative endeavors. And I think that they're vastly important. I mean, maybe it just, maybe that's just me, you know, like, but it seems like a lot of people are realizing that also, or like agreeing that that's the case. Yeah, definitely. Um, I I was thinking the other day about advertising and how hard it must be. You were talking about desire, um, 
you know, in the forties and fifties, the kind of, uh, Bernays shift where it went from, uh, this is a shoe. It's a good shoe because it, you know, does a good job of what a shoe should do to, yeah. this is a shoe that will make you sexy or, you know, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I was thinking the other day about how, uh, how hard it must be to advertise to people that are worried about their basic needs and all of a sudden try and sell somebody a, a bottle of perfume or, you know, whatever else. Um, yeah. Like these kind of incorporeal uh, experiences and stuff like that, that are mostly desire based and aspirational. You know, yeah. How, how I mean, are the Instagram influencers doing right now? <laughs> it's hard to say. Yeah. I, I mean, that's, it is a strange thing. I mean, you know, th- when this is all over, uh, you know, if and when things go back to normal, uh, you, I think you'll see like huge push in the direction of that desire-based stuff, like trying to claw its way back into people's lives. Um, and it is, you know, kind of most people. That's you know the reality of our life for a lot of people, and I'm definitely not knocking people for wanting things, you know, of course, but uh, but yeah, it's important to know like how you're being targeted, you know, and it's happening even more so with, you know, with digital technology, you know, like the, that, you know, every, every move that you make on your phone or your computer is there. These different companies are looking at the data of what you're doing and selling, you know, pointing ads at you specifically to try to cater to your lifestyle. Like it's like this lifestyle marketing thing also, you know, like, well, you need these things. If this is like, you're this type of person and these are the types of things that, you people like, you know, like, uh, and you know, that's the, I don't know. I, I try my best to avoid that kind of stuff. Um, cause I don't, it doesn't make me feel good. Um, and maybe that's just because I'm hyper aware of it, you know, like, but, uh, yeah. it, it's, hard yeah, I mean, I, I like, I like art and things because it, they make me feel like I actually grow, you know, like when I get someone's art or see someone making art, uh, I feel like there's like, I can learn something about myself from it, but they're not like trying to target me with it. You know, they're just making the thing that they make. And if it resonates with me, it causes me to reflect on myself in some way and my place in the world. And, um, yeah, advertising though. I'm not a fan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not, not a fan. The thing, the thing I always think is crazy is that, uh, advertising works on advertisers. So you, you mentioned being like hyper aware of it. They've done studies where they've had people whose job it is is to you know sway people one way or another with advertising, and then they show them ads. They have them engage with them as ads, you know, like they talk about what the ads are doing. And at the end of yeah. the day, it still makes them more likely to buy the product, which is incredible. You know, those are the most hyper aware people, um, and it still rewires your brain in some way. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of psychology involved in it. You know the I, I've actually over the last couple of years been reading a lot of psychology books and I find it fascinating because there's all these tricks, you know, the human brain works in a very certain way on a lot of things, you know, like, and when you know those tricks, it's really easy to get people to do the things that you want them to do. Um, and politically also, you know, like the current president uh, for, for being, uh, you know, like a lot of people considering to not, him to not be that intelligent of a person when he speaks. And as far as how he speaks, it's probably pretty true, you know, but um, he is very clever when it comes to the psychological tactics that get the things that he wants to work. Um, and I think that a lot of, you're seeing a lot of leaders in the world rising to power right now that are doing these same types of things and they're they're formulaic you know like they're they're tried and tested methods of getting people to react the way that you want them to react um and it's kind of scary you know like the the human brain is a is an interesting thing um and yeah you can like you said with the advertising thing or like there's you know all these different experiments that they've done you know like trying out these methods and it's uncanny how well it works you know when you understand the psychology bond, the way people behave, not just individually, but people behave in a completely different way when they're in groups, you know, um, because we're, we evolved from hunter gatherers, you know, and our brains have not really changed since then. Our world has changed significantly. And because of cooperation networks, we've been able to, 
make huge leaps and bounds technologically to be this, what seems like this far advanced species, but our brains haven't actually changed, you know, like they're, it's the same structure that they were when we were hunter gatherers and feuding tribes, you know? Yeah. If, if you look at kind of like prehistorical man, uh, very small changes took millions of millions of years to make. Um, yeah. you know, so to think that we can somehow react to the internet, you know, and have our brains be able to be ready for that kind of contact, uh, is kind of, giving ourselves a little too much credit maybe uh yeah i mean i think we have a lot of potential you know for what we can do but i think there are serious limitations to what to expect out of our brains you know because they are largely predictable in a lot of ways you know um for better or worse you know (laughs) Mm -hmm. i mean i don't want to say we can't do it but uh, you know, there's also, but there's plenty of evidence that, um, to predict how we will do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it plays out, uh, pretty often historically, you know? So the idea that we have, ch- that we've changed, but you know, it's the same with like a current, like the current, uh, situation with what's going on in the world with the, the pandemic, you know, uh, it's easy when you've gone through a, a spell of your life and this thing has not happened in this way. And to say, you know, like, well, we're past that. Like we've advanced medically, we've advanced in all these ways. Like that's not going to happen again. And we say that because we have no personal experience of it happening. And then it happens. Uh, and then we have to deal with it, you know, and we're, and we're caught off guard because we, um, it's, it's called optimism bias, I believe. Uh, it's like the, the psychological mechanism for this, where you just you th- say like, it can never happen to me because it's never happened to you before. Um, and it's easy to get caught up in that, you know, and it's the same with a lot of these like psychological patterns, you know, like we may be, uh, we just, we feel like we have, have advanced as a species or something, you know? Um, and in a lot of ways we have, like I said, you know, like technologically and things, but we behave, yeah, we behave in a, within the limitations of our brains, you know? Um, and our brains are kind of set structures you know that uh they had a lot of like i said there's a lot of potential there i'm not trying to downplay like the vast amount of human potential that there is and i think that we could surprise ourselves quite a bit but um but i think it's important to stay aware of how we do things you know and how we have done things in the past consistently as a species you know and um the more aware of those types of things you are i think the more likely you are maybe to change it if you can be aware of it i don't know yeah, I, I agree. Um, I, I always think people thought with World War II that kind of, you know, fascism was dead. Uh, any kind of like Holocaust kind of event was dead. And we moved move past it. And it's like, well, if you look at human history, these kind of events have been happening for all of our history. Yeah. And I'm sure lots of people, you know, during the Enlightenment, they were thinking, oh, there's never going to be another you know, mass genocide experience, you know, uh, event or whatever. Uh, and then they experienced it again and again. Yeah. And I mean, I don't think it's, it's any, it's, I don't think it's a coincidence that you're seeing right now, the rise of nationalism at just about the time that all the people who remember world war two are dying out. And suddenly you're seeing some of the same things that started to happen around that time with the rise of nationalism and, you know, these different types of, uh, ideas that suddenly are appealing again, you know, like, Oh, well, you know, like, th- like, th- Oh, this sounds like a, you know, s- suddenly you're seeing like these ideas rise that, like you said, the generations who remembered or who their parents or grandparents even remembered world war two, you would think like that would never happen again. We saw what it did. It will not happen again because we had a collective memory of it. And it, it's not surprising to me that, like, as that memory is fading, suddenly it's like, oh, wait a minute, like, maybe this could work, you know, like, <laughs> it, it's, it's, uh, yeah, like you said, it's a, it's a cycle. And uh, I, it's kind of frightening to see us flirting with it again, you know, as a, yeah. as a people. It's kind of, 
you know, I know it's not representative of people as a whole, hopefully, but when you see, you know, like Charlottesville a couple of years ago and stuff, I think one of the most disturbing things about it, other than the violence and the fascism and the nationalism and stuff, was the average age of the people there was probably 25, you know? Um, And I I think you're probably right. It's probably they're disconnected enough from, you know, World War II and stuff that they can kind of forget about that kind of, you know, where that leads. They they don't have a real life experience to what that can turn into, you know? Uh, and the, and the scary thing about it is it doesn't take that many people, you know, like it doesn't take a majority of the population necessarily for things like that to happen, you know? Um, and you see it even on the other side, you know, you see it even with like the rise of like, uh, communist states and socialist states and different types of things like usually it is actually like a minority like a small percentage who is decides to take enough action to sway the course of things you know um and yeah i mean it, it it's a it's a thing that you can look back in history and you can see time and time again and you know like we're saying you uh it's cyclical. You can see this pattern repeats itself, you know? Um, yeah, I don't mean to be so like pessimistic sounding with all that, you know, like I definitely believe in, uh, continuing to fight for what you believe is right, you know? Um, and to try to make a difference and to stop those types of things from happening. But cause there's also like a, a precedent for the, those types of things for resistance and, you know, to, to, uh, to make a difference. Um, but it takes takes people being willing to do that, you know, mm-hmm. um, in bo- on both sides of it, you know, like people being willing to try to a- assert their ideas into the world, which going back to, you know, like that's why I like to try to encourage people to be creative because I think that it's incredibly important. I think art's a very influential thing and it's important for people to put their ideas into the world because if they don't, other people will, you know, like, and other people should, of course, you know, like we should all be doing that. But the, if there's like a void of certain perspectives, then those perspectives will be overshadowed, you know? And so it's important for people. And I mean, of course, like probably there's a lot of like-minded people to me that are, you know, my message is reaching in some way, like those words are reaching. Um, Yeah. And, you know, just want to encourage people that their voice matters and that their ideas matter And, um, yeah, you know, you have to put those things into the world. You can't just wait for someone else to say the thing that you wanted to say, you know, because someone else might not. Did, did the artwork, uh, you know, kind of doing that and successfully bringing all these people together and just, you know, making art without any kind of reliance on external support structures or anything like that. Um, did that change your worldview at all? Uh, to me, it just made me feel like, um, that, 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 that for me personally was the right approach, you know, like I, um, it solidified some of the, uh, some of those ideas of like, you know, doing things yourself. And, um, it just showed me the the validity of that approach, you know, that, you, that yeah, you, all you really need, I mean, if, you need a support structure of friends of people who are, are willing to help you, you know, the same with my music, you know, like when I go on tour, if it weren't for all the people who book the shows and like, and come to the shows and and buy things for me that help me keep me on the road and people that give me a place to stay, like I would be irrelevant. And I'm, I'm one piece of that big puzzle. And so you do need those types of support groups, but that's also a combination of a bunch of other people who are also just trying to do it themselves, you know? And, um, yeah, I mean, I think that 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 was the big takeaway for me that like it anything is possible, you know, like you really can achieve things. You just have to stick to them and you have to put in a ton of work and you have to put your own money into it and um you know, because the art war was that way, you know, like it I spent 4 months, we spent 4 months planning the thing and then, you know, like I funded it all myself. I just saved up money from work and just paid for everything, you know, and like we went dumpster diving to get food for the house to feed everybody. And, you know, like we just figured out a way to make it work. Um, and then there's no way I could have done it alone. Uh, but, and, you know, I, I worked for the milestone and snug Harbor two venues in Charlotte. Um, 
and they let me have a month off work to do this, you know, and like I got my shifts covered. And so it was a huge support network that allowed it to happen, but it was also like taking the initiative to decide to do it, you know, and to decide like, I'm going to spend all my money on this and I'm going to spend all my time on this. And, uh, I mean, it's a huge investment. It's a huge amount of work, but that's, that's what it takes. I mean, um, you know, it's, uh, and it's worth it if you stick to it, you know, like it, tons of wonderful things came out of that for me and wonderful friendships and uh, wonderful messages from people saying how much it had inspired them to do things of their own or to, to decide, you know, like to work on that thing that they had been putting off and thinking no one else would care about or, you know, and that's huge. You know, like if you make that kind of difference, even if you make that kind of difference in one person's life, like that's, that's an insane honor, you know, like to be able to, to play that role in the world. And it's worth it, you know, and there's no reason to me to stop, you know, and if, of course, if someone, you know, if a label or something came along that I, and I agreed with their, uh, what they were doing and how they were doing things or whatever, and they wanted to help out with what I was doing or something like, yeah, I'd be interested, you know, in some way, if it was the right, if it felt right and everything looked proper, you know, um, but I'm not like that's not what I'm shooting for, you know, like I'm going to keep doing this, what I'm doing by myself if I have to, um, with the friends and people who support what I do, you know, like, and that's enough. If that's all that it ever is, that's enough for me, you know, that it doesn't have to be more than that. I feel like it's already pretty successful in that sense that I get to do what I like to do. And I mean, of course I do work a job, like I don't do this for a living. Um, and that's okay. You know, like this is what I want to do with my life. I'm going to figure out how to do that by any means necessary, you know, like, however I have to do it, I'm going to do it. And I hope others will find that in their lives because it's very rewarding. It's exhausting and rewarding, rewarding and fulfilling and, you know, grueling. And it's all the things, uh, but that's, that's life. You know, that's how life, that's how life is no matter what. So why not? Yeah. Why not spend your time doing the things you love if you can, as much of it as you can. Yeah, kind of a literal labor of love. Yeah. Uh, I, I think there's something really human. And, you know, most people don't like their jobs. But as far as, like, actually doing work goes, like, there's something so satisfying to, like, put hard work into a thing and transform it into another thing. Uh, I think it's just one of the most, uh, like, human human drives outside of the, you know, the the needs hierarchy is just kind of the the transformational act of working on something. Yeah, for sure. I mean, Um, I think people do need work in some ways, you know, like it's, uh, you know, if you have a lot of free time, like it, I mean, for me personally, at least like it eat, it eats me. It eats away at my brain if I don't have stuff to do, you know, and it, but it feels good to spend my time and a bunch of energy and on things that I really want, you know, like, like making music or making art or tour, like booking a tour and then going on tour and doing, you know, driving the thousands of miles and, uh, all of that feels good. You know, like it, Mm -hmm. it's hard sometimes for sure to do all of that yourself, you know, but, um, yeah, but at the end of the day, you're not, you're, it's your, it's something that you really want and that is fulfilling and that makes it worth it. You don't even think about the work sometimes, you know, yeah. it gives you a purpose, you know, you have a, a reason for being here, you know, it feels good. Are you, uh, I mean, based on that, I would assume that you've probably got something you're working on right now. Is there any particular, you know, art form or music or anything that you've been kind of spending some time doing lately? Uh, yeah. Um, actually I I have a new record done. Uh, it's finished and I was planning to, when I got back from this last tour in the beginning of March to start pressing it on vinyl and to release it within, you know, this year. Uh, of course that's all a little bit on hold at the moment because, you know, there's some financial uncertainty as with what's going on. And, um, I'm kind of glad that I didn't already have the vinyl pressing in the works because, that would have been difficult for me to have spent that money at the moment, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm kind of glad that I have that right now saved because, you know, I don't know what's going to happen with 
financially. Um, but that record is finished. And in the meantime, you know, I had that record was finished last year, but my father was ill, um, and ended up passing away in December. And so I had put it off a little bit because of that. Um, and in the meantime, I had started working on, essentially I haven't another records worth of material also done. Um, and also I did a record that I will probably be releasing in the next week or two. Um, that's, uh, like a cover record of strictly by friends of mine, you know, like the, the, the rule I set for myself was that I wanted to do a record of covers, but only by people that I know personally. Um, and so I've done that and I'm waiting on a friend to look at it. Yeah. I'm, I'm waiting on a friend to look it over who does like, um, mixing and mastering stuff. And, uh, I have like a tentative date set for it. I don't want to say it just in case it doesn't happen on mm-hmm. that day. But, um, uh, but yeah, I, mean, I essentially I was going to release it for free anyway, because you know, the work belongs to a lot of other people and splitting up royalties and stuff. Like I don't, I don't trust myself to be able to keep track of that properly. So the, the idea was always to put it up as a free download for people. Um, and to put it on like streaming services f- for people. Um, so that's going to happen soon because I feel like right now is probably a good time for that. You know, like uh, people have time on their hands and uh, it'd be nice, I think, to just release something for, that people can just have. Um, and then also because of the time at home with the quarantine, I've been working on several collaborative projects with friends that are turning into what look to be records, you know, or mm-hmm. EPs or, or full links that will... I'm sure in due time be released, but, um, yeah, a couple of them are, are coming along pretty well. That's awesome. The covers album is kind of like a reverse songs of Andy situation. Yeah. (laughs) I had been working on it. I had been working on it before, uh, the, before Kyle did the, organized the tribute comp to me. Um, so yeah, I was, I was thrilled when he asked me, he asked for my, approval to <laughs> to try to orchestrate that compilation that was a huge honor for everyone to to do that yeah it was really it, awesome it was very flattering very flattering for me i bet so yeah that's cool so now you get to pass on the pass on that that goodwill yeah yeah i mean you know i i i'm lucky to i feel like i'm lucky to have some really amazing friends that write incredible songs and there were just a handful that I had written down. I had been like for a while, like had this little like ledger of songs that friends of mine had written that really struck me, you know, and that I wanted, I was like, I'd like to cover these one day, but I don't really do covers so much, you know, like mm-hmm. pretty much all my records, you know, like they're not covers. I think one had a traditional song on it, but um, yeah, I, so then I, I just had a, ended up with enough on that list. I thought, I just want to make a record of, but not, you know, like, Oh, like a band that inspired me or something like actually people that I know that way I can put it out for free and link other people. If people are a fan of what I do, I can link to these other people who I know personally that maybe we'll get some other people seeing what they do, who I think are, you know, writing incredible music. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm looking, excited about looking it. forward to all of those maybe approaching a dozen of releases you've got in a year or so. Yeah. There, there there'll be quite a bit, uh, quite a bit of stuff I think will come out of this time. I imagine it'll be that way for a lot of people, you know, for a lot of artists. I hope so. Hopefully they're spending their, (laughs) this time doing doing that or planning a garden or something, you know, something, something productive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You gotta, uh, you gotta, you got to work to appreciate the downtime. If you just have a hundred percent downtime, it's not very, uh, not very meaningful. Yeah. Like I said, I have a hard time with it. I have to have a, I get pretty depressed pretty quick if I don't have something to focus on. So yeah. And like I said, that's where the whole creator parish thing came from. I realized like I have to spend my time doing stuff or I'll, I won't make it. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I think that's a really good message for people right now too. It's kind of yeah. like, 
they've got so much to deal with that, uh, you know, maybe one outlet that they haven't considered is, you know, making something. So, yeah. Yeah. Writing or, you know, like there's infinite, you know, sculpting, drawing, you know, anything gardening, you know, I mean, that's a creative endeavor, even, you know, like you're making, you're growing a thing. Like that's, that's incredible. You know, like there's plenty of things. Or, you know, if you have a family, of course, you know, like focus, you know, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that are creative, productive endeavors. Mm-hmm. Well, with that, Andy, I appreciate your time. Yeah, of course. It's a pleasure. Big fan of your, your work, uh, both musical and otherwise. And uh, I appreciate it. thanks for coming on the show. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Hopefully we can have you back on uh, sometime soon when you've got a record coming out too. I would love that. Yeah. Any, anytime, please. Awesome. Well, sounds good. All right. Take it easy. Thanks. Andy. Yeah, you too. Thank you. Take care of yourself. Bye. Bye. This has been a comfort monk production. Mm-hmm.